If you've been here over the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been reading Luke, his account in particular, of the Christmas story. And so each of the accounts focuses on different aspects of what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is this uh, moment where God entered into humanity, entered into flesh in order to become a human, to suffer with us, um, that we might not be alone, to understand what it's like to be human, and obviously to redeem and rescue us. Luke begins uh, his particular story, his narrative, with Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, this priest. And his announcement is that his barren wife would bear a child. Gabriel tells Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And of course, Gabriel's talking about John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Messiah. The next part of the story, we see Gabriel making another visit. This time he visits Mary with the proclamation that she will also give birth in a miraculous way, but her birth will ultimately be to the Messiah. Needless to say, because she is unmarried, she has questions, but ultimately she surrenders to God's plan for her life, saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. May Mary's response be our response to God's will for our lives as well. We then see Mary visiting Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, to confirm Gabriel's proclamation that she too would give birth, even in her old age. And of course, when Elizabeth sees Mary, she declares, she says this, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy.'" And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so Elizabeth offers this proclamation affirming what the angel Gabriel has said to Mary. Last week, we looked at the final verses of Luke chapter 1 where John the Baptist is born and Zechariah makes a declaration. He says this, "'Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And so it's clear that John's assignment in life, John the Baptist's assignment in life, that is, will be to prepare the way for the Messiah who will rescue and redeem God's people. The next part of Luke's story begins in chapter 2, where he tells of Jesus' birth. I'm going to read that uh, just now, if you will. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this season of Advent, this season of Christmas, this time of uh, thinking about the incarnation. And Father, I pray that as we are reminded of this season and this incarnation, that we would remember just how much you loved us, how much you cared for humanity, Father, that your son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, would take on human flesh in order to enter into our experience, to be born, Father, to live a human life, to suffer, Father, to die ultimately and rise again, that we might be reunited with you. And so, Father, I pray today 
that this message of the incarnation would change the way that we think, that this uh, remembrance of your son becoming flesh might determine the way that we feel, that we might all of a sudden be filled with hope and with joy, knowing that you are good, you are God, and that you love us. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have a quick question for you to think about. Um, you can ponder it for a moment. And the question is this, how do you determine what is true? How do you determine what's true? Maybe a, a second question would be, how do you determine what you believe? How do you determine what it is that you believe? What's true? What do you believe? Some of you may know that there's an entire branch of philosophy uh, it's basically this concept called epistemology, and it exists entirely to, to plumb the depths of those two issues. What's true? What do you believe? The questions of truth and knowing have always presented a challenge, but it seems like lately the question of how we know anything or to believe anything seems like that's reached a deafening crescendo. I think we can all agree to that. Let me give you some examples of how we determine what we believe and what's true and why it matters. The questions are this. Was Russian disinformation at play in Trump's 2016 election? Please don't answer out loud. <laughs> Did COVID escape from a lab in the Wuhan area or from a nearby wet market? Again, don't answer out loud. Did George Floyd die as a result of a racist cop's malice? Or did he die due to a fentanyl overdose? Was the Hunter Biden laptop real, or was it the product of more Russian disinformation? How about the 2020 election? Was it stolen? What really happened on January the 6th? And perhaps the biggest question of what's true that came about over the last several years was, are aliens real? And I think there we have the answer. Clearly, they're real. New terms have popped up in the last few years to describe how truth is under attack. Most of us are now familiar with the following words, misinformation and disinformation, even if we're not quite sure what they mean. Uh, according to several sources I looked up, misinformation is false or inaccurate information. It's basically just sort of getting the details wrong. Disinformation, on the other hand, is false information, which is deliberately intended to mislead. It's intentionally misstating the facts. And so it would seem that misinformation is accidental, but still potentially harmful, while disinformation is intentional, and it's spread for the intent purpose of doing harm. In 2018, a new governmental agency called CISA, which is called Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's what it stands for, was created to combat disinformation and misinformation. Now, here's what's interesting. In a world that's largely impacted by what we would call postmodernity, where truth has been determined to be relative, embedded within this very purpose statement of this agency is the assumption that there is indeed something that we call truth. And there's the assumption that what is true matters, despite what certain philosophical systems might say. I would argue that this concept of truth also matters for Luke as the author of this gospel. In this section of Scripture today, we see what we will call the incarnation, and we'll see that it's not just a symbol. It's not just a metaphor. The claims of the incarnation are grounded in history, in time and place and space, but it's also grounded in biblical prophecy, and ultimately both are grounded in humility. Let's take a look at each of those 
beginning with the truth of the fact that the incarnation is grounded in history. I'm going to jump back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we're also going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read all these together. Inasmuch as many many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Luke writes, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, let me go ahead and acknowledge something. Uh, The Bible, admittedly, is not always easy to understand. I think we can all agree about that. It's a book that is comprised of 66 different books or letters written by as many as 40 different authors and spanning as, ba- as far back as 4,500 years ago. And so, again, it's, it's really ancient, and there are lots of different authors. It's also comprised of any number of different genres. It's got prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, poetic literature, didactic literature, wisdom literature, as well as historical literature, which is what I would argue we see here in the Gospel of Luke. It purports to, uh, to tell us what really happened in the course of human history. Luke begins by telling us in his introduction that he set out to write an orderly account of Jesus' life based upon eyewitness testimony. So he's basically saying at the very beginning, my intention here is to interview eyewitnesses and to basically come up with an orderly account of what happened in Jesus' birth and his life and his death. There are any other number of different places throughout Scripture where the author clearly states that that's their purpose as well. And oftentimes, whoever the author is will then give the names of various eyewitnesses so that anyone interested can go and ask them, like, go ask them yourself. And Luke essentially does that here in his gospel. He's likely writing around 60 AD, give or take a few years. And so there were people still around whom he would have interviewed. You can just imagine, for example, Luke sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and asking her to tell him about the night that the angel appeared. You can imagine Luke also sitting there and asking her to tell him all about the trip to Bethlehem. He would have wanted to know all about the shepherds and the eventual arrival of these Persian magi who brought their gifts to the newborn king of the Jews. You can just imagine them sitting there and having that conversation together. And then here in chapter 2, we see Luke rooting the story of Jesus' birth at a particular moment in human history, specifically during the reign of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. It should be abundantly clear that for Luke, the story of God becoming human 2,000 years ago wasn't a legend, it wasn't a myth, but rather was a real moment in the history of humanity. And the question for us this morning might be, is the story of the incarnation disinformation? In other words, was it an intentional lie created by Jesus or by the disciples? Theoretically, you might argue that it's possible, but if so, then why would Jesus and his followers die for something that they knew wasn't true, that they knew didn't really happen? That seems highly unlikely to me. Maybe instead of disinformation, it was misinformation, not so much a lie, but something false nevertheless. 
Again, of course, that's possible, but again, the followers of Jesus, Peter, Paul, Thomas, James, John, all of these people that followed Jesus and spent years with him, the list goes on and on. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. They witnessed his miracles. They heard his teaching. They touched his resurrected body. If the incarnation didn't really happen, then Jesus was, in the words of C.S. Lewis, either a lunatic or he was a liar. And wouldn't those very first eyewitnesses have been the first ones to really know whether or not Jesus was or who he was, what he claimed to be? Or maybe the answer is that as Lewis puts forth that Jesus really was Lord, that he really was the second person of the Trinity entering into flesh, entering into human history. In fact, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes the following. He says this to, to his readers, and I would argue to us, you must make your choice. Either this man, that is Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me, again, Lewis writes, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. The incarnation, God becoming a human being, the incarnation, a baby in a manger surrounded by animals, visited by shepherds and wise men, is rooted in history, actual time, actual space. What we choose to believe, however, is up to us. We not only see that the incarnation was grounded in history, however, we also see a second thing that I think comes out in this passage, and that is that the incarnation is also grounded in prophecy. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, most of you know this, but many books and films are built around some prophecy coming true. That was true in Harry Potter. In the story of Harry Potter, we see that uh, there's this prophecy regarding Harry and Voldemort. For those of you who are a little more into kids' movies, Kung Fu Panda is centered around a prophecy concerning Poe. Star Wars contains a prophecy around one who will bring balance to the Force. And of course, if you've seen The Matrix, which came out now in 1999, it centers around whether or not Neo is the one. More recently, Dune deals with a prophecy about a Messiah-like figure who will turn the desert planet of Arrakis into a lush green world. We love these stories that uh, talk about prophecies being fulfilled. Now, obviously, the Bible is filled with prophecies as well, prophecies about a Savior. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we read about one who would wound the serpent's head, but be wounded himself in the process. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read about one who would be born of a virgin and whose name would be called Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. 
We read in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, yet another prophecy regarding the origin of this Savior who would be called out of Egypt. Matthew tells us how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well. So he, that is Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Here in Luke chapter 2, we see yet another fulfillment of prophecy. Micah, writing 800 years before Jesus, prophesies this. He says this, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, I point this out for two different reasons. First of all, it's good for us to be reminded of these Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, because let's face it, we've, been, we've become so distracted by a culture that uh, has Netflix and social media and Spotify that our knowledge of Scripture as a whole is pretty anemic. I think we can argue that that's true. And so as a result of, seven, uh, of being the pastor of Seven Hills Fellowship, I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to expose you, the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, to more Scripture. The second reason that I bring attention to the incarnation being rooted in Scripture and in prophecy is to highlight what was required for this particular prophecy to be fulfilled. In verse 1, we read that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem happened because an emperor named Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone in the Roman Empire should be registered. They had to go back to their, the, found, the hometown of their families, and this meant that Joseph had to take his pregnant wife to his ancestral home for the purpose of taxation. Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who, of course, never had a son of his own. Caesar Augustus was actually the founder of the Roman Empire. He reigned as the first Roman emperor from 27 BC until his death in AD 14. His reign initiated what is known as the Pax Romana, a time in which the Roman world was largely free of armed conflict, and that not only allowed for Joseph and Mary to travel safely to Bethlehem, but it allowed for the spread of the gospel after Jesus' resurrection. And so you may be asking, well, why does any of that matter? It matters because there is evidence that the message of Christianity, God entering into human history, engaging in a rescue mission, Jesus' death and resurrection is actually true, that it is rooted in human history, that it is rooted in prophecy. Some of you here today need to hear that for the first time. Others of us need to be reminded once again this season that we too have good reason to believe. So the incarnation is rooted in history. It's also rooted in prophecy. But finally, what I'd like for us to look at is that the incarnation is also rooted, it's grounded in humility. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The Christmas story is always an appropriate reminder of Jesus' humility. The Son of God's surrogate parents were poor people from an out-of-the-way town. Jesus wasn't born in a castle, but rather he was brought into the world surrounded by farm animals and then placed in a feeding trough. I've often thought about this, but one day when I get the chance, I want to ask Jesus what all of that was like. 
I want to know if he was conscious the whole time or if his awareness of his surroundings was more of a process. Either way, surely his transition from spirit to flesh was jarring, was humbling. There's actually an entire area of theology that looks at the subject of what they call Jesus' humility. This field is not concerned so much with Jesus' character as much as with his experience. The Westminster Larger Catechism deals at some length with this issue. Question 46 asks this, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? It then answers uh, like this, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein He, for our sakes, emptying Himself of His glory, took upon Him the form of a servant in His conception and birth, life, death, and after His death until His resurrection. In other words, this entire event of the incarnation for the Prince of Heaven, it was all humbling. It was all humiliation. Question 47 goes a little bit further into Jesus' birth, asking this, how did Christ humble Himself in His conception and His birth? It then answers the question this way, Christ humbled Himself in His conception and birth in that, being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, He was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman, of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Now, that last clause is not that easy to understand, but abasement means this. It means to be treated with disrespect, to be treated without weight. So, what the Westminster Confession, the larger and the shorter catechisms are getting at is that the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one who had only ever known glory and honor, exchanged His strength for weakness. He traded wealth for poverty. He exchanged honor for shame, plenty for want. He exchanged a heavenly throne for an earthly manger. In the words of Philippians chapter 2, Jesus made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so the incarnation rooted in history, grounded in prophecy, grounded in humility, is a reminder that God was willing to do whatever it took to bring us back.